Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me this evening is Liam Cochran, who is now lecturing in journalism at Melbourne University. He has an extensive history in Southeast Asia, in particular Thailand and Myanmar. Liam, welcome to the program. Hi, Luke. Myanmar is obviously a subject that's close to your heart and you have several peers, colleagues, journalists that you've worked for in Myanmar at the moment, and I understand some are in prison. How are they coping and uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, Luke, this has been devastating to watch from afar. As the ABC Southeast Asia correspondent, I was lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in Myanmar and, and do some news stories, but also some longer kind of doco stories. And one of them in particular involved going up to Shan State and we did a a half-hour documentary about the, the opium situation up there, and, and we had a, an amazing time, and we were helped no end by a, a guy called Han Ta, who is just a fabulous journalist, fabulous guy, and, and a wonderful travel companion. And we just couldn't couldn't have done the story without him. And, and I know any journalists who've, who've worked in different countries, different languages, will we'll know what I'm talking about. Fixes are so important uh, sure. for that ground research, ground truthing kind of kind of role. So Hantha was with us for all those adventures and good stories, and he has been swept up in the crackdowns happening in Myanmar since the coup. Because as well as being a great friend to the ABC and so many other international media outlets, he also is, is quite a big player in the country's media scene himself. Mm. He co-founded the organisation Kamiut Media, um, with another guy, another young guy called Nathan Mong. The two of them set up this online uh, media portal, which was, this was a few years back, I think it was 2006, roughly, that they started it up. And it was right. pretty, it was a bit groundbreaking for the time. Yeah, and it became really popular with the young audience. And mm-hmm. they sort of blended news and, and entertainment. You know, there's a bit of celebrity gossip and all that stuff in there to, to keep it popular. And it became really popular. And so right. when the uh, the coup happened in February and the uh, the country started shutting down, they weren't on the first list of people and organisations to get banned and to get imprisoned, but eventually the soldiers came for them and both Hanthar and Nathan were uh, were arrested. And we didn't really hear anything from them for a few weeks and subsequently we've learnt that, that what happened is that they were taken to a military interrogation centre and they were tortured and... For Hanthar, that went on for around two weeks. Uh, he was he was terribly tortured, and some details have came have come out about exactly what happened. And 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 it was hard stuff to hear when it's when it's your friend. You know, we mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had the experience of you know we report about bad things all of the time, but but when it's someone that you know, it, it does bring it even closer and becomes more visceral. Hearing reports about you know daily beatings, starvation having cigarettes put out on him. Um, it's horrible to, to hear. Endless really periods in isolation. Yeah, that's right. So it went on for about two weeks for him. To, for Nathan, apparently after about four days, they realised that he has a, a US passport as well as Myanmar citizenship. Right. Uh, and so they, they kind of went easy on him or stopped torturing him after about four days. And so after a couple of weeks there, they were transferred to, to insane prison mm-hmm. which you know in the in the the topsy-turvy relativity of myanmar these days was sort of is sort of a, a sanctuary of sorts because there is at least you know a, a, a 
more proper prison uh, system running it and that there's accountability in terms of information getting out with released prisoners. Right. So, yeah, so, so Hantar has, has been in prison since then and is, uh, it was, a, you know, in, in a really bad way. Nathan Mong was uh, released from prison mm-hmm. and deported to the U.S. I, I think the uh, U.S. State Department did, did some pretty um, strong work to try and get him out, but no such luck for Han Thao. And, uh, yeah, so that's the situation with, with him. And, and I yep. should say, you know, he, he's the guy that I know, but know best. But there are uh, dozens of media workers uh, who are still in prison. So it's been really difficult to try and work out what to do, what we can do. Which was my next question, yeah. Yeah, no, that that was my next question, is what can people do? Do you think the Australian government has done enough, given you're down there at the moment? Yeah, look, I'd love to see the Australian government advocate on behalf of Hanthar, on Mm. on the basis that he's been a friend of the ABC for so many years. He's not a direct ABC staff member, but we couldn't have done those stories without him. Um, I consider him a, a colleague and... And I know that if it was me locked up in prison, Hanthar would be doing absolutely everything he could to get me out. And and I think we owe him uh, as much as we can do as, as our colleague and as our friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Australia's in a difficult situation because the Australian citizen, Sean Turnell, yes. who was Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, economics advisor, he's also been arrested and seems to be quite a, a key figure in all of this. So clearly... The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade are working primarily to get Sean Turnell out. He he is the priority, obviously. But I would hope that they are also trying to advocate for everyone who's been arrested unfairly, but but in particular, Hentar is a friend of the ABC. And I think, you know know what, I think this is a real opportunity for the Australian government, but also the Australian military. Because as you Mm. know, Luke, the Aussie military have had a a fairly controversial military-to-military cooperation program with the Myanmar army, the Tamador. And uh, it's a small program. It's mostly English language lessons and and that kind of thing. But it's a symbolic program. And they've always defended that program on the basis that it might not be the nicest army in the world, but we need to be engaged and we need to try and encourage these guys to, you know, improve their human rights performance and, and all that stuff. And I think this could be an opportunity for them to to show the benefit of that engagement and to show that they do have some influence and that this controversial program has actually been worth something. Right. And it's time for the Australian government to act, I think, if only because there are reports emerging now that Sean Turnell may have contracted COVID-19. And it's uh, one thing to have a bargaining chip on the table and that's perhaps behind why the government is adopting a softly, softly approach. But if Turnell has COVID-19 and if he potentially fatal, that could be a game changer in uh, relations between the two countries. I think it absolutely would. Yeah, I I think just the fact that that Sean Turnell is imprisoned is a, it's a huge deal. I mean, Mm. for those of us who've covered Myanmar for a while, Sean Turnell has been this kind of mild-mannered, softly-spoken kind of economics geek. If, uh, yeah, I hope you won't mind me right. putting it that no, way. No, no, not at all. Um, I think you're quite right. I'm sure he wouldn't. He's a very affable guy. But he's the sort of guy that you'd ring up for a, um, you know, to get a juicy quote from, and he'd probably calm it down and talk it down. He's a very moderate kind of guy and very committed to Myanmar as a country and the people of Myanmar. You know, you, you couldn't ask for a better foreign advisor and friend of the country. So... 
Yeah, I, th- I think um, it, it would be a huge, uh, huge issue um, if he does have COVID and, and if he becomes more unwell. And hey, look, that, that wouldn't be surprising. The, the, the reports coming out of Myanmar at the moment in terms of the COVID crisis are just staggering. Yes. I was reading a, a, an incredible article from Mary Callahan in the Asia Times, and she's quoting unnamed sources, but apparently informed medical sources mm-hmm. who are estimating that half the population could be infected with COVID in the next three weeks. And get this, that the death toll eventually could be up to 10 to 15 million people. Whoa. Just staggering, staggering numbers. And the, the, the sort of uh, the way that oxygen supplies seem to have been weaponized by uh, the military uh, junta, mm. um, re- really, really concerning stuff. So, yeah, in, in that context, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the, the prisons are absolutely awash with COVID. Right. I'm reading a report at the moment from Reuters. The dispatches out of uh, Beijing and Shanghai with China reporting its highest tally of new confirmed cases since January, and it's driven by a surge of imported infections from Yunnan in the southwest, which shares the border with Myanmar. So the implication is Mm. that the Chinese are worried about what's happening in Myanmar, and their spike in COVID-19 is now being driven by that country and we have to face a few facts on this one the the pandemic is out of control and the reason why is because of the coup and simply nothing happened in terms of a response to the pandemic after the military seized power well that's right and and it couldn't really because the systems as they existed the health systems and mm. the doctors were protesting schools were shut down you know that the, the whole infrastructure of the country has just been decimated, not just by the coup, but also the reaction to the coup, the deliberate civil disobedience movement mm-hmm. that's been so steadfast in showing its opposition. And, you know, it seems to have been a much stronger and more sustained response oh, than perhaps the military commander in online might have anticipated. Yeah, they're, um, they're delusional about what what they thought they'd get as opposed to what they did get. Mm. Mm, that's right. And it does seem like the people of Myanmar, you know, they're, they're, they're going to extraordinary lengths to, to protest and, and deprive mm. themselves of of everything, of food and of medicines and, and, of, and of life right. um, in order to try and get their, their point across. So, yeah, it's pretty, it, it's super worrying. And, and look, I guess it does, you know, bring up the, the, the wider point that this is a cross-border thing, mm. uh, unless borders are actually slam shut the problems that happen in other countries sort of everyone's problem you know, exactly in, in, particularly in, in asia sense. they can shut the borders but they don't remain firmly shut and there are people still crossing and uh, the delta virus is spreading here into cambodia it's all over thailand vietnam it's uh, certainly changing the reaction and the, the kind of the face of the disease for want of putting it another way it's completely tip the response on its head and the headlines in southeast asia now and indonesia as well as that uh is red line that the health system has reached full capacity and it's at the point of imploding and one can only imagine that in myanmar it's going to be a damn sight worse
Yeah, absolutely. And and it really comes down to the, the race for vaccines and mm-hmm. um, the, the, the different paces that different countries are able to, to muster there. And that's presuming mm-hmm. that there's not another variation of the virus that throws everything else out into whack. Right. Um, but I was just checking up about Cambodia, where you are, that yeah. the, the rates there, that's the, the Sinovac um, vaccine that is mostly being provided. And that the government's saying that about 6 million people uh, have been vaccinated, which if, yeah. if that's the case, that's about 60% of the adult population. But that's about, that's not much less than the Australian vaccination, which is at only about 7 million and only about 28%. So, yeah. I mean, we're, it, it's quite staggering that sitting here in Melbourne, you know, living in a, a very advanced country, economically wealthy country with a very, very strong health system, that the national government has seemingly squandered the advantage, that the early advantage that, that was achieved by these strict lockdowns and now we're sort of going along at a less than you know cambodia sort of level of vaccinations yeah. it, it's incredible and also kudos to cambodia and its health workers for for getting that many vaccines out yeah it's they've, they've done a very good job on that the issue now is that infection rates are not coming down and nor is the death toll that hasn't mm. come back at all but at the same time, this is where the impact of the Delta virus is having, you know, where it's really hitting home, uh, is that seems to be proliferating just as the vaccinations are being rolled out. And it's very difficult to tell or determine what the impact is having on the general population. Mm. From what I'm seeing, just from afar, yeah. um, the, the economic impact has just been devastating. Oh, sure. Um, you know, the... the yeah. I was hearing that uh, my, my kind of home away from home, the Villa Lanka guest house in central Phnom Penh closed down and yeah, it's was uh, selling up all its wares. And, yep. you know, that's sad. That's like seeing my, uh, my my home being sold off. I spent so much time there on assignment. It's um, not... But what's your sense? I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you've been covering, you've been living in Cambodia so long. What what's, what does the economic look, the situation e- look like from there? The economic situation has been completely tipped on its head. Western businesses were leaving around the time of the 2018 elections, which was widely derided as rigged. And that just kind of never stopped. And then with COVID, it's accelerated. The Chinese have left, although there are signs that they're coming back at the moment. There's a kind of small wave of maybe new money coming in. But, you know, to drive down the riverfront, everything is closed. Businesses have Mm. gone broke. A lot of the old haunts have certainly gone at Villa Lanka. I had a couple of friends who are long-termers here and, oh, they, they liked that one. They were over there buying up all the antiques, you know, so if you want a fire sale, now's the time to come and get it. But uh, how do you get it out of the country? Where do you jump from? Where do you jump to? How do you jump back into the country? As that's where I think the whole stranded mentality has emerged from and we're just watching businesses sink quietly into the abyss and they're not coming back. Yeah, just awful to see and, and uh, must be gutting for, for all the Cambodian businesses who are sort of struggling by. You know, I was a, yeah. a, a little bit amused and, and I guess, you know, it, it reminded me of the wonderful, resilient Cambodia that I love so much to see mm. that when they close down the markets, there was a lot of inventiveness with throwing vegetable markets on the back of tuk-tuks. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, lots of mobile <laughs> markets starting, starting up, which was great to see yeah. on, okay. on a micro level. But, you know, how long can that go on? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the big hotels, and there's lots of them. I mean, 
you know, a lot of people had been to Cambodia, say, 20 years ago. They wouldn't recognise the country now. But uh, there's no people. And the I think the population of Phnom Penh has probably gone from... Uh, the official population was 2 million. At its peak, it's probably 5. And at the moment, it might be down to 500,000. It's uh, Everybody's left in waves. They've gone back to the villages where they can live off the land. They know how to catch fish. They know how to look after each other. They don't get that in garment factories, and they certainly don't get that from the government. Although, having said that, the government here has managed to... Uh, roll out its own social security system for the first time where cash payments are being sent directly to impoverished villages in the countryside and that's not a bad thing they've put several items on the political agenda and carried them out but the problem now is that the numbers are are fierce and the delta variant and then there are reports as you mentioned earlier and perhaps coming through Myanmar and Thailand of a hybrid variant a cross between alpha which was the UK variant and the Delta variant, which emerged out of India, and no one quite knows where that's going to take us yet either. So it'll be fun and games for uh, Southeast Asian countries who really struggle to keep their borders closed. I mean, we've seen in Australia the state borders between New South Wales and Victoria, how easy they were broken, and the population numbers. And when you get out there in the more remote parts of, uh, say, the Wimmera the big deserts where uh, there's just not a lot of people. It's easy enough. There's no one out there, really. People kind of looking at ways of sneaking across highways and things like that. But in Southeast Asia, there are millions and millions of people living on these borders and cutting across through a clearing in the trees is normal and they can't police it. Yeah, absolutely. And people don't necessarily have the resources to be able to to isolate and stay separate. You know, there's a certain level of supply of just Mm. food and medicines and basic things to live on that you need to be able to do that especially if you don't have family around. And, Indeed. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, I, I realise that the um, there's been a massive hit to the garment factories because of the European Union tariffs being taken away and yes. all of that. But, um, Which was in response think about, to the 2018 think, elections. I'll just mm, quickly add. Yeah. I, I think about doing stories on garment factory workers and visiting mm. their accommodation and it's a little kind of tin sheds yes it hasn't changed mostly young women sleeping sort of five to a bed kind of thing because it cuts down on the rent and eating one or two meals a day of simple rice and soup and yeah. you know like these are these are young people who are living on the on the edge already um they're sacrificing so much already so that they can send money back to their families in That's the right. countryside it's just there's, there's not the buffer that i think many people have you know we we've all got it we've all got a unique situation with covid and I read a, a, an interesting, um, I guess, metaphor for yeah. it. There's a lot of talk about we're all in this together. And uh, I read today someone saying, well, it's it's the same storm, but we're all in different boats. Indeed. Uh, and I think, <laughs> and I think it, I think that's a good way to put it in terms of you know, yeah. if you, if you live in a big fancy house uh, next to a well-stocked supermarket, then then your boat's looking pretty good. Indeed, indeed, indeed. How is the COVID lockdowns in Australia impacting on? Uh, student life uh, i've got an i have a nephew who just came through film school and uh his last year was pretty dull uh you're lecturing in journalism uh, australia is a great source of journalists for southeast asia how are you seeing the next generation of reporters coming through in a covert environment 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm teaching into the master's program at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne Uni. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But look, what I'm seeing, Luke, is, is just students being hit. You know, all last year students were, were learning online. Yeah. And that's not what university is about, you know. University is no, about having those in-person experiences, about making friends and about learning things in a classroom yep. and having conversations. And, you know, as much as... as, as we as educators can try and replicate that, can try and bring innovative ideas and activities and energy. There's only so much you can do. And there's a huge amount of weariness from students who are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for their education and getting it delivered online. So it's been really, really tough. Um, it's It's been a real insight for me um, to, to have these Zoom sessions. And yep. I guess one thing you get with Zoom is a little window into people's lives or at least their, you know, their bedroom or their living room or their parents in the background. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That's it. And it's been really, I guess, instructive to see a lot of the international students who, you know, typically will, will have a, uh, a small apartment in the CBD and just to sort of see you know, pretty small little rooms mm. with not much furniture, a couple of postcards or family sort of photos on the wall, yep. not much to do beyond their device and, you know, streaming services and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, it's really tough, you know. You, th- you think back to your youth and your uni days and how much fun I'm sure you had. And, oh, no, we had I, a lot of fun. We had a lot. Of, I was yeah, editor of the university it. newspaper and um, spearheading a protest movement at the time, which included uh, the Tiananmen Square massacres. But my God, we got out there thousands and yeah. thousands of at rock concerts, at protests, uh, people drinking. The way it worked, the socialising aspect, which was always kind of an extension of what you were studying, and it carries on into into work, particularly the media game. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so there is this sort of, there's been a huge impact on mental health, to sort of put it in a nutshell. You, you, yeah, and I really feel for students, there's some incredibly bright, capable, energetic young people who are studying journalism and who are doing some great work don't let me be too negative we still managed to pivot to online learning we you know we were filming everything on our phones you know I had students were going out for their you know they were only allowed out here in Melbourne where it's really strict only allowed out for one exercise session a day so it was a matter of well take your phone go and do an interview in the park you know put your runners on and do your interview in your runners It, it really did you know force all of us to become very adaptive and and probably learn some skills that will continue being handy. And on a quick note, we've got press clubs up here advocating that journalists should self-test for COVID before going out into the field, which I'm struggling to get used to because I've had the two shots. I'm always wearing a mask. I'm not a nurse. Am I supposed to whack two things up my nose and down my tonsils and get everybody else in the newsroom to do the same thing? Are we expected to do that to people we interview in the field? It makes it a non-starter. Yeah, look, and I'm sure there's a little bit of the COVID cover coming in and it being used. And uh, But it, uh, it is really hard for, for mm. journalists to get out and do those interviews. And one thing that we're finding in terms of, of our students, because mm. we have a lot of international students right. doing the master's program, uh, and a lot of them are from mainland China. And when COVID broke out in Australia, a lot of students went back home to China, totally understandably, get back to base, get back to the family, and haven't been able to come back to Australia. 
Mm-hmm. So that's really added a an extra layer of difficulty into the whole operation. Yeah. Um, because now we find ourselves trying to teach journalism not just to students and international students and Chinese students in Australia, but we're trying to teach journalism to students who are physically in China and you know living under the laws and norms of the Chinese Communist Party. Which is increasingly and, oppressive. And it's increasingly anti-media, at least anti-Western media, and the sort of journalism that we are teaching and we stand by as, as good journalism. And it's a really difficult situation for, for us as staff to sort of grapple with, but also for students as well, because th- these are some of the brightest students who have managed to, to come over to yeah. do masters in Australia. And they're not going um, to Australia they, not to finish. If you undertake a master's program, you expect to finish. You expect to get that piece of paper at the end. Uh, you have to do the work. To have it disrupted halfway through like this and having to go home and having to pay so much money and how, how do the universities deal with this logistically, it must be a nightmare. Yeah, really tough because as well as getting the education, the, you know, the book learning, um, right. you know, students come to Australia because they, they want to improve their English. They want to meet people from other cultures who think differently from them. And, you know, at least some of them want to have their minds expanded. Like so many of us at university, we we want that brain explosion kind of, you know, uh, experience. Yeah, well factor. That's that's increasingly difficult to provide or to to sort of facilitate. You you know, think about it. How, How much can we ask of a student who is physically living in China to go out on the streets as a student journalist, put a microphone in someone's face and start asking questions. You can't do it. In these difficult times. Exactly. You can't yeah, it's a real it. it's a real balance between doing no harm on one hand and on the other hand doing no journalism. Um, it's, a, it's a real bind. And um, actually Human Rights Watch covered this in a recent report about the influence of, I guess, Chinese um, or the fear amongst Chinese students in Australia about freedom of speech. And they did come across three cases where, because of things that were said in an Australian classroom, the family members of those students received visits from police or other authorities back in China. And there is a, there is a real fear amongst those students, the, the Chinese students, that they may be being monitored, that, they, that other students might be sort of reporting on them. And, you know, we don't want to over, overhype that and, and give it more oxygen than it needs. But we also have to make sure that students are aware of the risks of, of even taking a course, of speaking out in class and what they say in class. And, and it's difficult because what we want is to encourage students who've come from a, an education system that perhaps didn't encourage speaking out and having discussions. We, we want that to change, right. but we have to be really careful about how far we push it. There is a long history in Australia, I won't mention the countries, but I certainly know of some countries where foreign students would study in Australia and America, Canada, New Zealand, Europe, and they would volunteer information and send it back home. And the respective foreign departments would collate this information. And this is how students who wanted a job in the bureaucracy when they went back would ingratiate themselves with their governments. But at the same time, I'd never heard of stories like this, where the families of students who may have said something controversial in a foreign university were getting visits from the government. That's quite out of order. 
Very and quite terrifying, yeah. I might add, for the particularly and, and look, for the families. We, we need to keep it, you know, in in perspective. That's three cases that Human Rights Watch managed to stand up. Right. Um, in in you know the hundreds of thousands of international students who study in Australia, but what it has is the effect of, of fear and that chilling effect. It's the old Asian expression, uh, you know, kill the chickens to scare the monkeys, or or variations <laughs> of that. It's you true. only need to. That's right. You, you only need to make an example of a few people to, to make the point. And it, look, it is it is a concern that the students are worried about. So look, what we're doing to try and address that is to start each subject with a, a bit of a preamble, I suppose, and, and just say, look, this is what we're on about. This is what we mean by journalism. These are the risks of doing journalism. These are your responsibilities as a journalism student. You're all adults. You're doing a master's program. So we'll, we'll leave it to you to decide. But you know, if you've got any questions, come and talk to us. And just trying to at least let students know that we're aware about it. And the other thing is for, for students who've come from mainland China and have grown up there, that they've grown up with a very limited media diet. Right. So they perhaps don't fully realise the risks that might be around. Yeah. So, yeah, look, it's a, it's a difficult balancing act, but we're, we're trying to do it and we're trying to sort of, you know, maintain a bit of energy and enthusiasm and we're, we're hoping that the, uh, the current lockdown here in Melbourne will finish soon enough for us to get back on campus and we get to go back to, uh, to teaching journalism and, and doing interviews and, as you said, the fun stuff that kind of lights our fire. Uh, that's Indeed. why we do this. It's filing stories... It brings a satisfaction that I would love to pass on to students and that I, I went out shooting with a buddy mm. recently, which I hadn't done for quite a while, and I was as happy as I've been in a long time. You know, it's, it's why we do this job. I just really hope that Get the on students the road. Can have that experience. Yep. Liam, it's been great talking to you. Thanks very much, and I do hope the situation improves in Melbourne as it does in Cambodia and Hong Kong and certainly Myanmar. Yeah, good to catch up, Luke, and take care of yourself there in Cambodia. You too. Thanks, mate.